Simple Beep, episode 55, Crazy Apple Concepts. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on many of our episodes, we've looked back at particular Apple products. And today we're going to look at some things that might have become Apple products, most of which never did, however. And one of the interesting things about these concepts is that we've got about four different things that we're going to touch on in this episode. And if we ruled out the first one of them, it could have, the title of this episode could have been Three Crazy Apple Concepts from 1996. (laughs) But we're actually going to, as we like to do, start in chronological order. And we're going to go a little bit earlier than that. And we're going to start all the way back in 1987. A product demo of sorts or concept that was shown off by John Scully and something that we've talked about I think a couple times in previous episodes, because it's very much a forward-looking hypermedia assistant type of device. And this was a concept that Apple created called the Knowledge Navigator. And like I said, this premiered in 1987 at the Educom conference, which was a conference for higher education, specifically uh, the organization is now called Educause, and their mission's statement is to advance higher education through the use of information technology. And as CEO of Apple, John Scully was presenting there. And apparently that is the first place that this about five to seven minute video showing the knowledge navigator was ever shown. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the wonders of public and university libraries later on in the episode, because I got some excellent material from there. I also uh, tried to look up this keynote, just like, I don't know, does anybody have a copy of this? Like, WorldCat, help me out. (laughs) And uh, I was not able to track down a copy. There are apparently a few VHS copies at libraries around the world, but nowhere near me. Um, But I got the library catalog description of the keynote, which says that it focuses on the current state of higher education in America and the needs and potentials of the future, which it must struggle to address. It includes the brief simulation program called Shogai, or Life Force, which that, that is lost to the, the mists of time. But the thing that we're going to talk about, which uh, has at least been preserved on YouTube, uh, it demonstrates John Scully's vision of an artificial intelligence application in an academic setting, the Knowledge Navigator. It's a college professor... I think at home in like a nicely furnished library. Okay, this I, I have to comment on this. He's in his office, I guess, like you said, his home office, his palatial home office. Yes, <laughs> this is this is the uh, Amy Adams in Arrival problem, where you know all the academics are looking at it going, where did they get that house <laughs> on professor salary? So anyway, this professor has yeah a very very large nicely furnished office with all these you know hardwood furnishings and like a massive globe um off in the corner like I, I don't know i think his knowledge navigator would maybe take over that role but no he's got like a big old analog globe and uh all the trappings of a very posh large academics office and then right in the middle of his very nice desk is this apple knowledge navigator device and he interacts with it uh, a little bit through its touchscreen, uh, but the main way that he interacts with it is through voice. I was actually very curious about the uh, alleged touch interface because 
it, the the story is all told through voice, both the professor's voice and then the voice of the knowledge navigator and a little avatar on it, who is the who is the assistant who I he's wearing a bow tie and I think he looks a little bit like Mark Zuckerberg, which is kind of funny. I think so too. And there's a part where he's like, uh, "Do you want me to ask your friends to see if someone else can help you with this?" And I, and I had seen your note about Mark Zuckerberg. And was like, "Oh, <laughs> but yeah, let's talk a little bit about the device itself." I was going to say that. Most of the story and interaction is told through voice and the two characters basically speaking to each other. But then there's this implication that there's a touch interface. But every time that he does something through the touch interface, he just kind of like, you know that it's a dumb prop. And he's just been told, press hard, press down on the desk, because like, it's not even like typing on a keyboard or like hitting one of several function keys. It's just like smashy, smashy. Well, yeah, the the device itself I think it kind of reminds me of the very first generation Kindle. Uh, it's it's a piece of almost snow white design uh, plastic surrounding a touchscreen. And we'll talk about snow white design a little bit later in the show, but it, it was a design language that Frog Design, the design company, came up with for Apple uh, kind of after the original Macintosh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, there are some hallmarks of this design, which is a very certain like platinum uh, color to the the material that the devices are made out of, and also a lot of stripes, uh, both like presentational stripes and also uh, like exhaust vents for the fans and stuff in, on the inside. And so this kind of looks like if a much larger original Kindle uh, was made with the Snow White design language. It's kind of got like the the sharp corners and a little bit of angular uh, bits and pieces. And it in the middle is a touchscreen display that's showing something similar to the Macintosh operating system of that era. Uh, we have some notes down here. There's there's a menu bar across the top, and you're pretty much your usual like file edit. Um, and then instead of like the system seven, like well, that wasn't really, <laughs> that, that was not there yet. Yeah. No special. Instead it says, I think agent, which is like supposed to refer to the intelligent assistant. Mm-hmm. There's an Apple menu at the left hand side and a trash icon, uh, down at the lower right where it usually is, though it's not the 32 by 32 pixelated system six, system seven trash icon it looks a little nicer, like the kind of trash icon we'd start to see in OS X. It's evolved since then, obviously. Now we have the like beautiful plastic trash can. It's that sort of like wire trash can that you would have in a typical office. The device also has a webcam because uh, there's a part in the video where our protagonist in the video has a video conference with one of his colleagues at the university where he teaches. I got the impression that the colleague was actually remote, like somewhere else, like across the country. And there's a discussion, like basically the whole plot of the thing is like he hasn't prepared for his lecture that afternoon. And uh, and the knowledge navigator is going to save him. But then he also has to phone a friend and his friend who wrote this article that he wants her to like present to his class for, like, rem- remotely from across the country via the magic of telephony and the knowledge navigator and she's like no i have to bail you out again yeah you're right i think they are in different places because she says something like next time you're in berkeley you're buying dinner it's kind of a cheesily written script uh one thing that i thought was cool is there at a point he wants to 
gets get some data off of the device and put it onto some kind of removable uh, portable storage. And it's not um, a floppy disk, which would have been the standard for that time. It's not even anything like a USB thumb drive, which I think is the the standard we're kind of still in. But the removable media is almost like a credit card with some clear kind of mag stripe on it, which is where the, the data is being read from and written to that he kind of sticks into uh, the upper right edge of the device and leaves there kind of like a, a credit card with a chip. That totally makes sense for the late 80s, thinking that floppy-based storage would be the prevailing type of portable storage or something like it that was miniaturized a little bit more. And then we'll see with some of these devices as we get even to the mid-90s that as hard drives and CDs and other forms of larger capacity storage came into being that people were still kind of clinging to the idea that the floppy was the platonic ideal of removable storage. Uh, but the credit card was it was kind of cool. And in one respect, you look at something like, you know, little USB drives that we have now and thinking like, you know, in one way, that's kind of inelegant. You plug this thing in, and it hangs two inches out the edge of your computer, no matter whether it's a desktop computer or a laptop computer, or even like a tablet device, if it's not an iPad. And, you know, it's a little bit less elegant than this perfect concept. And so just wrapping up on a couple more features of the Knowledge Navigator that are shown, and whether any of them actually came to be, Obviously, the one thing to look at is this intelligent assistant, which is represented as you know, like uh, when we did the Douglas Adams episode and looked at Hyperland, they had all of these sort of like little moving avatars and images around the screen, which we found quite distracting. That's the way that it's presented here, as opposed to, say, Siri, in which is now available on the desktop um, much, much later. Uh, then this video was put out, or even when this video was maybe supposed to take place. But we now do have Siri on the desktop. And some of the things that the agent does are kind of similar to stuff that you could do with Siri. Like when he opens up the Knowledge Navigator, it, it's book-shaped and it pops open and it has a startup chime, which is yep. kind of adorable. That's true. And then it's instantly on. And the agent says, like, here's your calendar for the day. And it does that unprompted. And obviously, Siri doesn't do that, but you can request that information. You can say, what is my calendar today? And it'll give you a list of your events. So that's something that has actually come to pass. And then one of the other things that he does is he uses it basically for file searching, um, which is something that Siri can do. You have to do it a little bit more of like a query language type search. You have to be very specific. Whereas he says, you know, uh, like, show me my lecture notes from last year on this topic, which chances are Siri is not going to be able to do for you, but would actually be like a really useful uh, advancement of Siri in the near future that you could see with the appropriate hooks and the appropriate machine learning, that kind of thing could be done. I mean, I have folders full of lecture slides from when I was teaching in grad school, and it was very predictable. Like, they all lined up semester to semester. I taught the same course over and over, just like this guy was. It's something that could be done, but is not quite there yet. One other thing that uh, I have to mention is when this video was supposed to take place, so the 
the lovely office of the professor doesn't really give you any clues. But as he's talking with uh, his colleague about deforestation in the Amazon, the whole thing is about deforestation in the Amazon. Uh, they're comparing the data from their two articles and like mashing it up seamlessly because open doc, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, they do this animation that I think it, the way that the script proceeds is supposed to say like it's actual, it's not a projection into the future. And the time range that it covers is 1990 to 2010. So I guess this is a vision of what computing would be like in 2010, this sort of magic tablet device from Apple. And just so happens, coincidentally, that Apple released a kind of magic tablet device in 2010. It's called the iPad. So they nailed that bit. Yeah, we're going to be uh, looking at kind of like what Apple got right or what eventually came to pass, certainly in our final segment of this episode. And I think when it comes to the Knowledge Navigator, uh, yes, the timing of when these kind of uh, devices around this kind of form factor, uh, they got that right. Um, certain bits, like Ed said about the the assistant and what it would eventually be capable of, they got right. But I think in general the the knowledge navigator as like the full on personal assistant with human touches that do things like I mean keep your mom from interrupting your uh your day with her repeated phone calls as is an element in this video uh, hasn't really come to pass yeah this is like taking any piece of science fiction and looking at it and saying oh what came to actually pass and and what was just fantasy and the Knowledge Navigator video definitely falls in more into that genre. Well, let's move on to another another Apple product. This one's actually, I don't know if we'll come up on the side of whether it was actually an Apple product or not, but it's definitely more in the realm of science fact. Now we're going to fast forward to 1994, 1995, and Apple's not great foray into the video games industry. Yes, this may be the best known of the concepts we're going to discuss in this episode. It is the Apple Pippin. And similarly to the Newton, which we've been discussing for a couple episodes, Pippin can represent both a unique device and also plans for a platform and an ecosystem. So tackling the latter first, um, there's a wonderful version of the Pippin website over at the web archive. And in Apple's own words, Pippin is a set of technologies designed by Apple Computer, and at the time that this was saved, for Bandai Digital Entertainment Corporation in Japan. Pippin lets you run specifically modified Macintosh CD-ROMs on a low-cost player that plugs into a standard television set. So looking at it this way, Pippin was going to be a platform of kind of cheaper Macs that uh, more or less is a BYO KDM thing, a lot like the Mac Mini, except instead of a monitor, they were optimized for the television, which did lend itself to being more of an entertainment console, more than like productivity or other general Macintosh software. I just noticed looking at this website, which is, ooh, it's a bare bones website. I could have coded that up in raw HTML myself. Um, and it's pippin.apple.com. Uh, but it says, welcome to Pippin. And it makes me think, welcome to Macintosh. And it also makes me think that 
This is one of Apple's branding efforts where there's no definite article that goes before the product name. It's not the Pippin, it's Pippin. So let's talk about the Pippin device that uh, people probably associate most commonly with the Pippin name. And like Ed said, this story starts at the end of 1994 when Apple formally licensed the Pippin technology, the Pippin brand, etc., to Bandai. From Bandai. I can't see that and not think like all the, the toys of this era. I mean, that was the Japanese toys and games market. I mean, think of Nintendo. They existed for a hundred years before they created the Famicom and the NES. Um, you know, they sold everything. Um, so yeah, Bandai with uh, was licensing platforms to build strange video game hardware from Apple as at the same time that they were making like action figures or something. <laughs> So Bandai created a console that it called the at world, like the at symbol world. This is the console that you you see when you look at uh, images of the Pippin device. It was released first in Japan in 1995 and some eventually did make it to the U.S. the next year, 1996. One of the sources we looked at estimates that fewer than 42,000 of these consoles were sold. Uh, and less than 12,000 of those were sold in the U.S. So it definitely was not popular here in the United States. That's really, really bad. Um, like, I was putting this, I was, I was thinking of this in terms of, like, most famous video game flops. And it made me think of the Atari E.T. game that was famously, like, remaindered and buried in a landfill in Arizona, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking up that and like the reason that that game got such a terrible, terrible reputation is actually because 1.5 million copies were sold and it was a terrible game. And, um, the, the, the stories I read said that like, you know, everybody's grandma bought it for them because they thought that, you know, like they had heard of E.T. the movie. Um, and then like they remaindered. 2.5 million copies. So yes, like more, like way, way more uh, of a scale of a flop, but just in terms of a, like a product that never even got off the ground, uh, the at world or the Bandai Pippin or what, whatever it was called, there was not a cohesive marketing campaign around it either. The at mark, like what, what is it even? Um, it, it did not get off the ground in any sort of numbers. And I was just thinking about it at world. Like this was at the exact same time that Apple was also doing eWorld. And those look awfully similar. Yes. So how about the device itself? It's kind of a low cost Macintosh that is optimized to drive content to a TV and be consumed, you know, in a TV setting rather than a Macintosh that goes uh, in on your desk in your office. And it kind of looks like a VCR. The, as far as internals are concerned, uh, like we said, it w- the platform kind of came about in 1994 and the U.S. release of the hardware was in 1996. So it did have a PowerPC processor. We had moved on from the Motorola 68K processors, uh, 66 megahertz PowerPC processor. And it came with a modem. It came with a CD drive, uh, four-speed CD-ROM drive. One of these sites was happy to point out. And a video output for like, what is it? The the red 
white audio and yellow and the composite yes, video. Thank you. Composite video. Uh, but the specs of storage were incredibly low, even for this era. Uh, it was in terms of kilobytes, not megabytes. And one of the ways that they were able to make that work is that the operating system that ran Pippin, which was, uh, according to one source, basically a stripped down version of Macintosh System 7.5.2. One of the worse versions of System 7, in my recollection, not hitting the sweet spot there. (laughs) Yeah. The system, the OS, was not baked into uh, the like long-term storage of the device. Instead, the operating system had to be included on every CD, every piece of software that you bought for the Pippin. So everything would kind of boot uh, from the, the optical media, kind of like the original Macintosh, which had to boot from floppies. One of the other things about the console is that It was entering into a console market, but it was priced like a stripped-down PC or a stripped-down Mac, which it was. It retailed for $599 when it first went on sale in 96. To put that in some context and also to talk about its success. So first of all, it was released in 1995, uh, and it was less successful than another uh, video game platform that was released that year, the Virtual Boy. Uh, not exactly Nintendo's biggest hit. And in terms of entering the video game market, this is about the absolute worst time to try to come in, especially with something that's underpowered and overpriced, because the Pippin was released between the PlayStation and the Nintendo 64 on the timeline. And the PlayStation was released for $299. And that was a lot of money. That was basically the most that a game console had ever sold for, but it sold very well. And then the N64 came out, and Nintendo really, really had to fight to get to hit their price point, which was $199 at launch. And so the Pippin was really not anywhere in the right It was caught between two worlds, basically. It was not a strong entrant into the video game space, and it was not any kind of replacement for a home computer because it had basically only read-only CD-ROM titles uh, was the only software that you could run on it. It didn't have any kind of multitasking because the uh, the system software was, on, like you said, baked into those same disks that the program software was on, and it had extremely limited local memory. It also didn't have typical computer peripherals. It only had things that you would expect in a console, including a game controller that was called the Applejack controller. Um, this is not a good-looking video game controller. It's a crescent moon shape. Yeah, like a little boomerang. Boomerang or crescent moon shape that looks like it's curved too much and makes it would make it hard to hold. It has kind of a, a D-pad, one of those D-pads that doesn't lock into the different directions on the left-hand side. Four buttons like an SNES controller ish or an xbox controller on the right and then smack dab in the middle where you might expect the start and pause you know like start select buttons on a game controller of this era is a trackball which i think would also first of all like how do you even get your thumb over to it and second of all that seems like a very strange place to put a trackball of that size it's you know it's like a powerbook 
sized trackball, not like a full desktop trackball or like an arcade trackball that you might actually want to play a video game with. Um, it's, it's not a great controller. I remember, uh, there were a couple months there a few years ago where pretty much every podcast uh, was John Syracuse ragging on game controllers. I don't know if there's a definitive version of him taking down the Applejack controller. I think it, I think it didn't even pass muster uh, to get into there. Um, I did look up the Googled around for the Applejack controller, and the first one of the first things that came up was this uh, page that I, I just want to put it in the show notes. It's called like thirty like 30 ridiculous game controllers. And if you sent that to Syracuse, he, he would just like have an aneurysm. Some of these are like novelty devices, but the first one is the Applejack. And they are bad, 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 all kinds of bad. You will get carpal tunnel syndrome and not beat your games and you will be sad. <laughs> it should also be mentioned kind of along these lines of, of things you found. Uh, it should be noted that the Pippin is a kind of apple Oh, yes, it is. Uh, and that was the reason that it, the name was chosen. One other tie-in that it has back to Apple is that the Pippin logo is a black square with P-I-P, P-I-N in two rows. And the the eyes are like mirror images of each other, lowercase eyes. One has a dot on top, one has a dot on the bottom. And the colors of the six letters in Pippin are the six colors of the rainbow Apple logo. There's a frequently asked questions for the Pippin from MacGeek.org. And uh, one of the questions is, uh, like, why the name Pippin? And the answer is, not only is Pippin a type of apple, it is specifically an apple that is smaller than the Macintosh. It's, like, genetically related to the Macintosh, but produces smaller fruit. Yep. Which is, like, basically what this thing is. And yeah, just looking through the specs, I mean, like it's got a 603 that ran at 66 megahertz. It had that 4X CD-ROM drive. This basically was the PowerMac 6100 that we bought two years earlier, but with none of the good stuff. Because I mean, we, I, you know, I was a kid then. We had lots of like CD-ROM game and educational titles, and just running them on the Mac, it was the better experience. Yeah. So we said that this episode was all about crazy Apple concepts, and the question then is, well, the Pippin seems like it kind of saw the light of day, um, although it wasn't ever released under Apple's watch. I don't think any of the hardware actually had you know, like an Apple logo on it because it was that platform licensed Bandai. Uh, but there is another interesting TV-connected product that Apple uh, was in the concept and design phases of that never did make it to any kind of retail market. And this was linked in the Wikipedia article for the Pippin. And I had never heard of this, and it is amazing. Yeah, I had never heard of this either. It's a device called the Apple Interactive Television Box. And it does more or less what you would expect that device to do in 1994 or 1995. It was this flat box that looks very much like a sort of sleek cable box DVR like you might get today. And it was prototyped mainly in Europe. They built a few thousand units. And it was this seven-pound flat dark gray box, and it was built on the Quadra architecture, so not even built on that early uh, early power PC architecture. And it was designed to go with some never-quite-fully-fleshed-out 
IPTV format where it was basically it was a thin client, didn't have storage, had network connectivity, and was going to I don't know exactly how in 1994 stream even SD content, but it was supposed to be like on demand and have some of those type of features. And there were partners like I think British Telecom and a couple other of European TV providers were exploring this as a possible way of delivering TV in the future back then. This device is uh, its really something else. There are actually really great product photos over at Shrine of Apple, uh, Jonathan Zufi's site, and we'll link to those in the show notes. And there's also a good one that shows all of the ports along the back on the Wikipedia article. And it's got, it's got the panoply of 1994 ports. Yeah, goodness. It's got one of those square SCSI ports. It has two SCART, S-C-A-R-T, S-CART. I don't know what this is. It's a European video standard that used big chunky pins. Uh, it had two of those ports. The photo that they have there has, they've, they're covered up with plastic plugs that say, do not remove in all caps. And I think that this was like their only way of regionalizing across the, it, like it was a multi-region device because this was in the SD era where PAL and NTSC in the U.S. and outside the U.S. Um, were basically, there were standards that did not talk to each other. And if you had the wrong kind of input, like it, the signal didn't sync and you couldn't view anything. So I think they just built the device with both standards and then just plugged up, physically plugged up the one that you weren't supposed to use. Further down the line, you've got an S-Video and an ADB port right next to each other, which is a terrible idea <laughs> yep. because they're both those what, like DB7, DB9 ports. And if you plug the wrong one into the wrong, and, like, they're not color-coded. They're just, they don't have icons. They're just labeled with words. You plug the wrong thing in, you're toast. Um, and then on the far end, composite video. So these things were never, were never sold to consumers, but they're is a, a, a citation-needed <laughs> yeah. story, and I would love to hear any more corroborating information about this, uh, that they were sold en masse to another company that Apple is uh, pretty good friends with now. Even the details in what did get added to the Wikipedia article are vague because it says a few hundred to a few thousand units were put to use at Disneyland California Hotels. And uh, instead of trying to provide this futuristic on-demand television experience like the prototype was intended for, it was more to uh, make the in-room interactive TV experience possible. Like we've all been to hotel rooms where you turn on the TV and it defaults to like the hotel's channel. And so it sounds like these interactive television boxes were used to provide like the hotel programming, potentially in-room ordering of like merchandise or maybe room service or uh or even like information about the park interactive maps park navigation who knows and then uh the next sentence is that a, a few units even contained a special boot rom which allowed the device to boot locally from a uh, an external hard drive plugged in over scuzzy it's unclear if that's connected to the alleged disneyland units like was that how they got the content for the in-room entertainment menu? I'm genuinely curious about this, but the fact that like they might have sold them off in bulk to Disney and then they would have had to like special hack them anyway to work uh, because the IPTV backend that the device was expecting was never built out. Uh, just a wild, 
wild product that I don't see where anyone at Apple thought that this was going. But it's not that Apple has given up on its uh, idea of, you know, perfecting the television experience. We're still kind of waiting for the the newest Apple TV where the future of TV is apps to unify all the content providers, maybe like they were planning to do with content providers in Europe. Yeah, that grand IPTV experience has uh, still never happened. I mean, there were Apple TV rumors before there was a device called the Apple TV, before there was a device called the ITV. Um, but I think this is really as far back as it goes. This is this is the genesis. Yeah, the interactive television box, that is ITV. Yep. Now let's move on to the genesis of this episode Actually, how this got started was we saw a wonderful article that friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, put up on 512 Pixels a couple weeks ago, and he suggested that we go down this rabbit hole of weird Apple concept devices because he found something that was a weird Apple concept that wasn't even a device. It was a pure concept. It was a retail concept called Apple Cafe. We all love the Apple stores. The Apple stores are one of the, the most successful in terms of sales per square foot retail presences out there right now. I have a love-hate relationship with the Apple store, but yeah, they're a net good. <laughs> Those stores serve really two purposes. The main is, of course, to sell Apple products and related third-party products. And the second is it's a location for you to get technical support, the Genius Bar, and uh, to a lesser extent, like uh, learning and training. The Apple Cafe was not pure retail. It wasn't what we know our Apple stores to be today. It was an internet cafe. It was a place to come and hang out, a place to, uh, you could leave your, at the time, giant uh, tower computers at home, or even your bulky laptops, certainly compared to laptops we use today. And if you were out and you needed to use the internet, maybe to check your email, maybe just to, you know, do something entertaining on the internet, you could go to an Apple cafe, sit down at a Macintosh terminal, and, you know, browse the internet for a, a fee, certainly have some coffee, <laughs> and uh, even meet people, gather. It was a social uh, concept. This is all painting it very much like a typical internet cafe of the mid to late 90s, even the early 2000s, even you might still see a shady looking place labeled Internet Cafe in a strip mall somewhere in America today. But that is not the concept that uh, was put forth for Apple Cafe at all. No, this was, this was beyond a retail destination. The centerpieces of this post that Stephen put together are these two full-color paintings that really show off the concept. And this thing is like, it's like half of a city block. It's multiple floors. It's got a cantilevered section. Like the thing looks like it was designed by Frank Gehry. Um, it's got a big neon Apple logo on the side, which was became the, the logo of Apple Cafe that was on their... <laughs> On their very short-lived website, there's literally one capture in the Wayback Machine before it goes from their coming soon page to just a parked domain. Like, that's how fast it turned around. And the logo is, it's it says Apple Cafe in Garamond. Then there's neon Apple logo with uh, 
the world, like a world map in the center of the Apple logo, and then things orbiting it, like System 7 icons orbiting it. Like there's like the sound control panel and like users and groups and uh, TCP IP. And then an icon of someone surfing. So this is the place that you were supposed to go to. This is, you know, it, it looks like a Disney attraction rather than a retail shop. And I mean, the square footage on this concept is just massive. They've got like CRT, huge CRT displays hanging in each of six windows facing out onto the sidewalk. There are all these excited people walking up. There's this one guy who looks like really super excited to lead his lady friend into the Apple Cafe. (laughs) Uh, Then there's this sort of like gratuitous, I'm not sure what, like I think it's just a design element, kind of looks like a sail or a solar panel or a satellite dish. Like it's, it's pretty incredible. And then the inside view Given given the time that this was going on, 1996, 1997, where the company is, what kind of things they were developing at this point, the inside concept of the store, I don't know if the two groups were talking to each other or if it, this was just like the dream of the mid-90s. The entire inside looks like the gizmo theme from the early Copeland all of the structural pillars have like, they look like giant springs and they're all in bronze and gold color. There's more gratuitous TVs hanging from the ceiling with swoopy metal pieces. And there's sort of two main bars. Um, the one where there are people on bar stools using uh, like, uh, they're sort of reclined touch screens, it looks like. This is the kind of thing that you could actually go and do at the Apple store today. You can walk up and just use an iPad, surf the web. Like that's that's a thing that you could do. And then over on the left-hand side, there's a very kind of, I don't know, kind of a confused counter where they have power books out and uh, then behind that they have t-shirts. <laughs> so it is supposed to be this like social retail, I'm not sure what's going on experience, but the aesthetic is total retro future and definitely something that we never saw once Apple retail actually came to be. To get back into where this occurred in time, this is another 1996 announcement. I think they they announced their plans to start uh, building out these stores in November of 1996. Uh, the first one is going to be in Los Angeles. I think uh, it says 15,000 square feet. That's huge. With plans to open additional Apple cafes in London, Paris, New York, Tokyo, and Sydney. However, like Ed said... They didn't even get, have enough time to go from a coming soon page to uh, the real thing because by the end of 1997, the entire project was canceled. And as Stephen Hackett put at the end of his post, canceled in late 1997, I think we all know who killed this one. And yeah, it was going to be a huge money sink given the the scale that they were going for. Just to put this in some perspective for people who have, say, been to the flagship Apple store on Fifth Avenue in New York City, that store is 10,000 square feet. That's one of the biggest Apple stores on the planet. Yeah, this would have been 1.5 times. The only thing that (laughs) any of current Apple retail reminds me of uh, the Apple Cafe is this notion that it would be a place to gather. And that's actually something that Apple has done just in the past couple of years with the Apple stores, or now don't call them the Apple store, it's just Apple. 
Go to Apple Briarwood. Go to Apple Union Square. Go to Apple here, Apple there. But one of the things that they did, especially with their flagship store redesigns, especially the flagship store in San Francisco, which I've been to once with that giant open glass door and the genius grove and everything, is that they wanted to be more organic and have more meeting space. And there's like the patio area that is open 24 hours a day. They're like, come use our Wi-Fi. They aren't selling coffee or t-shirts yet. Um, But it was that notion of it being a more social space rather than a purely retail space. And in fact, I thought that this was mentioned in a keynote at some point. I couldn't find a keynote quote, but I did find a quote from Angela Arents, who's the senior VP of retail. Uh, When they did this big relaunch, she gave a quote to the New York Times that says, uh, one of the things that they wanted with these redesigned stores and spaces is they wanted people to say, meet me at Apple. Um, and I feel like that's something that they would have said about the Apple Cafe. Meet me at the Apple Cafe. Meet me at Apple Cafe. No definite articles anywhere. Um, <laughs> but that's about the only kernel of this that survived. But the the design aesthetic is really great to look back on. Speaking of uh, mid-90s design aesthetics and uh, visions of the retro future, let's get to uh, the the reason that we did this show after all. Uh, Apple Cafe was a great piece of inspiration, but it got me thinking, it got me remembering back to a Macworld issue that I could not shake out of my brain when I was uh, a little kid Mac fanboy. And uh, I had to go digging for exactly when this issue was, and then I had to go and actually, uh, there's no copies online, but fortunately, my local university library has bound copies of most of the entire run of Macworld. And so I was able to go and look and find the September 1996 Macworld issue, and their cover story is all about reimagining the Mac. So... This is very interesting. I I think this is a super interesting project that Macworld did, especially given the time that it happened. 1996 is that year where it's like, oh boy, don't look at Apple's product line because there's 37 different SKUs and nobody knows what's going on and the ship is sinking. Like Apple, Apple was actually doomed then. And so Macworld said, you know, we're a big player in this space. You announce products at our expo. Uh, let's, uh, let's give them a not so gentle push as to what we think the Mac could be. And just put it in a little bit more of that, uh, historical context in, in this, uh, so the front cover of this Macworld magazine is the concept fictional Mac that never existed. That was their cover story. The only piece of Apple hardware that they reviewed in this same issue was the network server 700. Also, since it was right there when I went to the library, they also had Mac user uh, just down the shelf in the stacks. And so I pulled out the same month uh, of Mac user. Okay, what was Mac user doing this month? Obviously, they weren't doing this crazy concept uh, feature article. Their front page story was the Power Tower Pro 225, which was uh, my crazy round pick in the Mac draft, ah, if you remember. Yeah. It was like it was like the most powerful mac clone because it got the 225 megahertz processor before apple did that was the kind of struggle that apple was in and so uh what happened was 
Macworld called up Frog Design and uh, said, let's do a feature story. And so as we talked about earlier with the Knowledge Navigator, Frog Design was the design house that uh, created the Snow White design language that guided a lot of early Macintosh, late Apple II era machines. Frog Design did not design the original Macintosh. Instead, you would look to things like the Apple IIc, or even if you're thinking the original Macintosh form factor, the SE and SE30 uh, follow the Snow White design language. The original Macintosh or the Fat Mac do not. And right in the second paragraph of the article in Macworld, they say that they designed the original Macintosh. Whoops. Uh, but that's the least interesting thing about these eight pages in Macworld. We're going to put links uh, to the companion website in the Wayback Machine and also the images in the show notes. So, you know, if you're driving, you're going to have to hold on. But otherwise, like, pull out your device and look at the show notes because you'll want to follow along for these devices. We can only do them so much justice in description. So... The article pitched two concepts, a desktop that they named Enterprise and a laptop that they named Galileo. And these were pitched at the high end of the Mac price range at that time. So they were saying that these systems were pretty specced out and that they would run from $3,500 to $5,000 in 1996. So if you adjust that for inflation today in 2017, that's about $5,500 to almost $8,000. So these were these were high-end machines that they were putting together. And if you think about it, they were really dream machines that they were putting together. They were saying, you know, and, and they say these are not pie-in-the-sky concepts, but they were everything but pie-in-the-sky concepts. The pitch, though, was they said that if they wanted to, Apple could develop these machines and have them ready for release in August of 1997, just a little bit less than a year later, for Macworld Expo, if they chose to. <laughs> um, so this is the this is the challenge uh, to Apple. Can you make a, a, a decent-looking, highly-specced computer? So... The thing that's really great about this article are the product shots, and they are of physical models that the Frog Design team created over the course of the design process itself took something like 18 months, but the actual model production took three weeks. Because remember, it's 1996, no 3D printing. All of these had to be basically, they had to be one-off made and molded, and boy, was there a lot of plastic molding. Because unlike a beige pizza box case that you might get from Apple at that time, there are lots of curves and lots of green plastic in all of these designs. Um, sort of a dark forest green plastic was the aesthetic that they went for. Um, on the desktop, the Enterprise desktop, the accents were in brown. I think also plastic, but to kind of give you that uh, that feeling of like wood paneling in a car. The device itself, uh, what you could see on the front of the magazine is what looks like the tower or the desktop piece of the system is sort of a half circle extruded backwards. It's got a rail that comes out of it and plants on the table. Then plugged into that rail, 
that's horizontal is a kind of chunky LCD screen. It's got a webcam that looks like a little alien antenna that's yellow coming out the top. And then the speakers are these two ping pong paddle looking things that have also been stuck into the rail on either side. And it does. It looks like it, it looks like a sci-fi set computer. Um, but a really I, I mean, I like the desktop uh design. It looks kind of cool. I, I like the idea of it. I like and we'll get into some of the the design choices that uh like make the concept possible. I think those are great. But I I mean, like you said, Alien Eye, a lot of this screams childish to me. And I think might have even screamed childish to me had I come across this uh, in 1996. I get that, that it, it, it doesn't look anything like an ordinary desktop computer, uh, especially for that era. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily childish. Yeah, the speakers and the webcam look kind of cartoony. They look a little Jetsons, uh, might be the aesthetic. Um, but I think that the, especially on the front cover, the actual, I don't know what, what you would call it. It's not a tower. It's not a desktop. That unit though, I think, what do they call it? They call it the drive pod. Uh, it's the part that contains all of the removable media. And that piece I think actually looks pretty good. Like that's that's kind of cool industrial design because it's playing on um, some hard edges and what you would expect out of a computer case. Uh, whereas the the screen is all a bit too soft and yeah, toy-like. Uh, they also have an ergonomic keyboard, which I mean, it looks a lot like, you know, like a Microsoft sculpt ergonomic keyboard or something. It's, it's not, you know, it, it's wild compared to, the designs that Apple had at the time, but it's not totally beyond the pale, except for the the faux leather uh, brown accents. Yeah, I'll I'll give you all that. I think really all the pieces that kind of <laughs> sprout out of this rail, which we'll talk about, are the pieces that scream childish to me. Like it's the, there's so many soft curves, like the the LCD that they're choosing to use in the prototype looks a lot to me like a children's tablet with the the thick bezels and soft rounded edges. Yeah, but I think that this was this kind of contrast against the stark hard corners and beige was exactly what people were craving. Remember, this is late 1996. The the iMac is only about a year down the line. Nobody knows that the iMac is coming. Uh but the iMac does many of those same, you know, bright colors mm-hmm. and round shapes as opposed to as opposed to uh squared off shapes. And I think it did it a little bit better and a little bit more of a unified design uh than this. But it's that I think it's that same kind of desire is what led to these design choices. Let's get into the 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 pieces though. So I mentioned there's the drive pod. Um which is like your ordinary desktop portion. Then this horizontal rail that comes out of it is where you plug everything in. Or if you like were importing an old monitor, uh, you would just sort of put like a tray on top of it and stick your monitor on top. This is the bit that I really didn't understand at all. 
It's, they call it the accessory rail. And they say it has a legacy VGA port for your old monitor, or you can get this fancy new LCD monitor and plug it in. And also the paddles um, for the to play sound out yeah. of the speakers. Yeah. And the webcam, there's a top-down view that shows that the webcam plugs directly down into the rail as well on like um, sort of telescoping arms. Uh, like you might have like a desk lamp that you can, uh, not not the ones that have like two or three segments, not like a Pixar lamp. One of the ones that are more like a coiled spring that whatever position you put it in, it, it locks. Mm-hmm. The accessory rail, as far as I can tell, everything else is specced out very clearly in the article. Like it has this processor and you could put these kind of drives in it and it has these ports and this and that. And that. The accessory rail is magic. Um, it, it seems that everything that plugs into the accessory rail just, it doesn't have ports. It's just got this line and, uh, like a, a little slit and anything that chunks down, anything that can be wedged into that slit is magically connected to the system. And that part is, uh, probably the weakest link, both in terms of the tech and, uh, and the design. That's exactly how I felt about this. It's the most, it's the most intriguing piece of this machine certainly for me uh especially if any any spot along this rail is an active connection point it's not like there's a designated space for you to thread the like ribbon cable for your monitor into the the middle of this rail and there's a designated spot for these paddle speakers but if it's truly just like a magic strip of connectivity that you drop your component anywhere on the rail that you want and it feeds power, data, uh, analog audio, I guess, just magically through, I, I would assume, exposed wires and pins. Uh, it, if that was possible and, you know, like relatively feasible and sane, that would be some pretty cool technology and certainly enable the modular nature of this high-end pro desktop machine. And speaking of modular, uh, we've talked about this drive pod, which would be like the the small tower component that can sit on your desk and support the weight and structure of this magical rail. The It's three drive bays tall. The top is reserved for the super disc, 120 megabyte floppies that were around during this time, not zip disks. But it's got three drive bays, so you could put a zip disk in there if you wanted. Exactly. The middle drive bay is for DVD-ROMs. And <laughs> there's a note here. They they spell out what DVD stands for. It's a digital versatile disc. <laughs> um, cutting edge technology. And then the third bay uh, doesn't ship by default with anything in it. So yes, you could put a zip drive in there. You could put a CDR, CDRW drive in there. You could put uh, tape drives, those DAT drives for old backup Uh I think Ed's even put here, yeah, the SideQuest drives. Yeah, I had to look up what those were again, and they were basically, um, floppies were not big enough for what you needed, CDRs were not really quite on the scene yet, and so just this format war of how are you going to store anything more than a couple of megabytes, and the SideQuest was basically described as like a removable hard drive drive? Almost like in a caddy like CD caddies. Yeah, so it was just it was just hard drive platters in caddies. Um and then you would pop those in and out. That seems that seems totally fine. Like uh you'll never lose any data on those. So yeah, this was the the kind of computer widget looking thing that would sit on your desk. 
but there was still a more traditional tower uh, that would, I guess, ideally sit on the floor next to your desk and run the magical, uh, what did they call it? Umbilical cord. Yeah, umbilical cord, exactly, up to this three-drive bay pod and accessory rail. It made me think of uh, when we were talking about ADC, uh, where it had to like it had to carry all of those things. It had to carry the power, and it had USB or FireWire or and the video like all over one one cable to rule them all. This is what they were proposing: is that then you could put this second half of the computer on the floor or in a closet? They say like I don't know how long this how long this cable is. Um, but they were envisioning it as being a space saver this way. And then still allowing you to have just like absurd, like absurd even by 90s build your own PC standards uh, of customizability and expandability. Yeah. So the traditional tower had two slots for CPUs, six slots for PCI, six PCI slots for uh, card expansion, and three additional drive bays. So again, uh, you could put in your SciQuest or iOmega Jazz, you know, big chunky cartridge for expandable More hard drives. removable storage or hard drives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And especially when so much of the discussion in the Mac community is about uh, what is a Mac Pro. The Mac Pro model hasn't been updated in years. And even this model we're stuck with now isn't truly expandable as a unit. Uh, you have to farm out your expandability to peripherals. Yeah, this is a very forward-thinking, expandable, upgradable machine that gives you a ton of space and drive bays to work with. One final thing that I think we have to mention in terms of the design, it only appears in one small photo in this multi-multi-photo article, is the mouse that was supposed to ship with this thing. This mouse makes the puck mouse look good. Oh, God. I guess it was wireless, maybe, because uh, it doesn't show any wires. Um, but it's basically a half sphere in this same like dark sage green plastic. Looks like it's a two-button mouse, but the buttons are completely flat and slope away from your fingers at a very sharp angle. This thing looks absolutely atrocious to use. Like I said, I would rather use a puck mouse. Yeah. So that covers Enterprise. Uh, like we said, words don't do it justice. Check out those photos. Uh, you will get the full idea of what Macworld and Frog Design were after here. Let's move on to Galileo, which I think, just judging on the photos, didn't get quite as fleshed out as the desktop. We were talking about the magic in uh, the rail, the accessories rail. I think there's more kind of uh, like swept under the rug magic going on here. <laughs> I don't think the keys on the keyboard are actually keys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think they're just a decal. Um, Galileo is the laptop concept that's supposed to pair with Enterprise. Um, and again, it's supposed to be a well-specced out machine. Um, and again, customizability everywhere. Like They're planning for multiple SKUs of this thing. They say, well, it's got an 800 by 600 display, which was good for the time. But then you could choose active or passive matrix because you could save money on a passive matrix if you didn't need like good graphics performance. But that's ridiculous. That's, they're, they're so forward-looking, and then like that goes backwards. One of the things um, that 
never happened with an Apple laptop, but other laptop makers did try, is a feature of the Galileo design, which is that the screen does not just hinge up, but it also swivels side to side. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hear your exasperation, Brian. Uh, you're... You're probably looking at this thing and wondering, what are the ears? Mm -hmm. So on either side of the monitor are these two giant flaps that are speakers, I believe. You know, they're supposed to be very high quality speakers, but they look like they look like ears. Uh, There's there's no other way to describe it. And that's what makes this look. Yeah, like a like a child's toy. They make a special note, actually, that these are these are like very like high quality speakers they may look silly but they're kind of like two large circle flaps <laughs> joined by membrane in the middle that uh flank the sides of the display but because there are two distinct sections to each speaker that means you have oh woofer and a tweeter nice another feature of these speakers is uh the display swivels left and right like ed just mentioned the speakers can fold in when you close the laptop and there's mention that one of the reasons uh, that this is designed to do that is that the entire laptop is uh, uniquely curved for ergonomic reasons, but in such a way that it's not just uh, like curves like we're, we're going to talk about the E-Mate. So I think that might be the closest parallel to this laptop. But I guess the speakers need to fold inward so that the display has something to rest on when you close it because the the keyboard kind of like slopes away or slopes down for ergonomic purposes. So these speakers serve, you know, one or two functions. I'm thinking back to like Pismo and Wall Street and those uh those late power books. And they were they, they did have very curvy cases. That was part of their design appeal. And it's taken to the extreme here where the actual base of the laptop is curved so that if you put it on a table, I guess it wouldn't rock, but it wouldn't lay flat. There would be air underneath. The notion was so that when you were using it as an actual laptop, that it would be sturdier. But because of this, the keyboard bows up in the middle and you have to fill in that gap because the screen is perfectly flat. And this is what these speaker flaps are for. However, in the QuickTime VR, (laughs) which miraculously, the Internet Archive somehow saved. And we'll put a link to that. In the QuickTime VR of this thing, it looks like the flaps actually go on the outside of the screen. And in the sketches that they have, it's different still. One of the other things about the curved design of this is that they also planned for it to have a carrying strap so that you didn't have to have a laptop bag or a case that... Instead, you would actually just like sling it over your shoulder and the the curve was supposed to, I think it says, quote, hug your hips as you walk with your uh, with your Galileo laptop. (laughs) One of the other uh, features of this is they just just go all out on this. Uh, They say, um, you know, wouldn't it be great then if you got, you know, to your home or office and you could use it as a fully docked, fully capable Macintosh? Well, just plug it in with the magical umbilical cord to your your enterprise and everything just it 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 all just works. And again, like I think that would be cool. It was certainly something that Apple tried with the Duo 
line of computers in the Duo Docks, which I think had some like large multi-pin connector in the back. Uh, I like the idea of the umbilical. It's just the, the the packaging for all this stuff is silly. Yeah, and it's something that I mean, like target display mode existed for a while in in IMAX. Uh, the now that we're onto the Retina IMAX, the 5K and 4K, because of the special video voodoo that's required for those higher resolution displays, uh, target display mode is no longer available, which I kind of miss because um, you know once I switch to an iMac at home as my primary Mac, um, you know sometimes I bring work home with me on my on my Air from work. And when I'm at my office, I have not a retina display, but I have a larger 1080p display that I do most of my work on. And when I'm home and I need to do something on that machine, it would be nice to be able to plug it into a bigger display, but I don't have the option because there is no target display mode, no no magic umbilical standard that will get from the the Apple laptop to the Apple desktop. A couple more things about this Galileo is uh, we've had mentioned the keyboard and how it kind of... Uh, arcs upwards towards the middle. Um, there's a pointing device below the keyboard, as traditional laptops have. But on the Galileo, the pointing device is swappable. You can have a trackpad, or you can have a trackball, or you can put in, like, chunk into your laptop a joystick. I think that this was just not not well thought through. There's also a track point, a la um, IBM ThinkPad. Um, and then the mouse buttons themselves, instead of being above or below the the trackpad, as is customary on older trackpads that had buttons, they're to the side. Um, I, I, I don't know that that would have worked very well. One, one final thing uh, before I get this thing off my screen... <laughs> Um, that I should mention is that unlike the the enterprise desktop, which has a pretty straightforward color palette of um, green and brown, this thing is a monstrosity. It's the same green for most of the body, but then the ear flaps are yellow. There's yellow palm rest, and then all of the drive stuff in the front is bright red. It reminds me of the uh, LPGA PowerBook, but worse. Not a good look. Sorry, Frog Design. Sorry, Macworld. <laughs> Well, we ended uh, that segment on a little bit of a down note concerning the design, but I think uh, we should talk about what did these two prototypes get right? Like, what are things that either successfully predicted where the future of the Macintosh was going or things that, like, we would have liked to see happen? Uh, like I've said, I think the the magic umbilical rail is very cool and there are elements of it like the duo dock or target display mode or like the magic uh, LG 5K ultrafine that only does one USB-C. That is a cool idea. And there are some other things that we think Frog Design and Macworld got right. Yeah, and many of these are actually things that were near-term predictions that they got right, which I think is, you know, in in one respect requires less creativity, but in another respect is to their credit that they were actually thinking uh, properly <laughs> along some of these design choices. And it's not the kind of thing like the Knowledge Navigator where you just like, oh, like, let's, let's imagine 23 years in the future it's science fiction and some of the stuff that we throw against the wall will actually be correct. 
um, some of the predictions here were were pretty concrete and really came to pass quickly. And I think that they were some of the only people who were saying some of these things. One interesting thing, uh, also within this feature, but sort of a separate sidebar article, was about these Macs and the Mac in general and its relationship to the internet and saying that Apple has to make the internet basically first class on the Mac. Remember that this is in the System 7 to Mac OS 8 transition period. Copeland is kind of a big question mark. If you look through this issue of Macworld and similar ones, I think um, Cyberdog was reviewed in this issue and they're talking about open dock like it's really like it's finally taken off guys <laughs> this is going to be it so th- that's where we are in terms of the software side of things but this the separate sidebar says every macintosh purchase should be connected to the internet and like duh i mean okay here we are podcasting in 2017 but uh i think that that was important for them to say and something that was very much a focus of the early imac marketing that came just a year later uh, that was a huge piece of selling point for the iMac. I mean, there was the "There's no Step Three" ad uh, that was that I like to make fun of, especially in in this in this article. They also say that Apple should partner with an internet provider, preferably an unlimited internet provider, and give you free like a year at least, like or six months at least of internet access out of the box. Close. Step three is Earthlink, and you did have to pay for it from month one, but it was the kind of thing that they wrapped into the iMac design and the marketing. Yeah, to continue on this train of thought, there's another quote from the article. Internet services should be woven so tightly into the fabric of the Mac OS that the line between local and distant resources is blurred almost to non-existence. Hello, iCloud. iCloud, Dropbox. Uh, pretty much the way that our mobile devices work these days. Uh, Everything's in the cloud, and uh, a lot of our devices, like phones and tablets, are essentially thin clients. We're streaming our music now. We don't, no one keeps uh, discrete MP3 files on their machines, except for, like, the two of us, I think. (laughs) And Steven, whose iPhone uh, just erased all of his music. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, that's definitely a... A concept and a, basically a paradigm of computing in general, uh, not just the Mac, that uh, these concepts got totally right. To put it in context, they're saying that these devices, or at least the, at least the desktop, was going to come with a 33.6 modem because that was basically the top of the line, and that you could install an interface for ISDN via PCI card. If, like, by some crazy happenstance, ISDN was a thing that existed in your part of the world in 1996. So to make that kind of a bold statement for weaving in internet services when the internet was pretty slow, and there are also paragraphs in the article that talk about the wonderful telephony and faxing things that you could do with a modem, um, more along the lines of the knowledge navigator, you know, like taking calls from your mom kind of thing that they were really forward thinking with this statement. Um, and it took a bit longer than some of the other things. One of the things that they turned around pretty quickly, though, in terms of predictions, is they said this device should have, quote, Intel's universal serial bus, aka USB. And I didn't realize that really anybody was pushing for it in the Mac 
before the iMac came out because it was such a it, it was so jarring to the entire Mac ecosystem when the iMac came out and there were no peripherals for this device and none of the old peripherals worked without adapters. And for Macworld to be saying, this is the new standard, Apple should be pushing on it, that was probably what was going on as this article went to press, is that these kind of things actually were being built into the prototypes that eventually became the iMac in the following year. One other thing that did come to pass and is now super standard on Apple products is the inclusion of the webcam. Uh, there were definitely third-party webcams at the time. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't uh, science fiction technology even in the mid-90s. It wasn't great technology, but it was a concept that was well enough known. Uh, but they were saying that it was basically included and standard. And their concept of this standalone camera that sort of peers over the top of your monitor was a lot like what Apple produced in the iSight, which was a few years later, it was in 2003, that the iSight was released. And now the iSight name has been recycled so many times, I can't keep track whether it's the forward-facing or the backward-facing camera. But basically every Apple hardware device except the watch has, at the top of its bezel, a forward-facing camera for that web conferencing, FaceTime type of purpose. So that one is definitely a hit uh, that... Apple, and of course, many other vendors have included that in many, many of their products. Speaking specifically about the enterprise desktop, and even more specifically, the drive bay pod that would, again, sit on your desk in close proximity to your keyboard, mouse, and monitor, that had a couple easy access ports right there under the three drive bays. Uh, I think USB, I think it even mentions Firewire, um, and certainly a headphone slash RCA for audio. And this is something that was uh, put in later Apple devices and I think even celebrated and now a little bit lamented when they're not there. For example, two headphone jacks on the front of the CRT IMAX or on the cheese grater G5 towers slash uh, early Mac Pros, we had the same kind of complement of ports, USB FireWire audio, and uh, I think there's still even a pretty robust ecosystem of third-party USB hubs designed specifically for the current model IMAX that kind of like wrap under the the chin of the display and use one of the USB ports on the back to create a USB hub in the front. So you have easy access to your ports. Uh, pretty simple idea that um, that they got right. Also, in terms of easy access, they also wanted the machine to be easily upgradable. And this was in the other portion of the machine, the control tower. And they wanted this to be easily upgradable as well. Remember, it had like six PCI slots and drive bays and all this stuff. And they have a diagram, not a, not a photo, of this push-button access, where you push a button and the case hinges open so that the PCI slots are flush against the desk, pointed up so that you can easily slot in pieces. They want you to be able to change the RAM, the PCI, the CPU even. They wanted everything to be easily upgradable. And this happened. This happened just a couple years later. Uh, the first hints of this came in the Power Mac 8600 and 9600 case design, which was, I think, just a year later. These had that uh, first hint of color on Apple cases, uh, the green button on top. And when you pushed that, the side panel came off, but the case itself didn't actually 
move. But it was still didn't require any kind of screws or anything or any of those like horrible, horrifying clips that you would have to pull apart in some of the desktop cases. Uh, the 6100, oh, I mean, remember feeling like we were breaking that thing every time. Um, and then this, the, almost this exact design actually was realized in the Power Mac G3 tower, the blue and white, which had the little thumb hole button on the side. And when you opened it up, the entire machine hinged down flat against the desk with the cards facing up almost, I mean, I want to say that someone at Apple who was working on that tower design read this article because of course they all read Macworld. Like, I mean, of course they did. <laughs> and some Apple designer said, of all of the 50 things in this article, this is the one that we're making happen. And and it did. Also on the laptop design, they also wanted it to be uh, very modular and easy to user serviceable and upgradable. They said just pop out the keyboard and then you'll have easy access to the RAM slots and updating your CPU. And this is exactly what happened on the PowerBook G4 that had that easy pop-out keyboard and the kind of things that you could put in there was, yes, you could upgrade the RAM right away. Just, again, no screws, just pop out the keyboard. And you could add the airport card there as well. And as for updating the CPU, no. I mean, that wasn't the high priority for Apple. They didn't really want people upgrading their own CPUs in most cases. And so that was packed away in a less accessible portion of the case for the PowerBook G4. Uh, but right on in terms of how you could make that design happen. A final bullet point we have under our list of things that these prototypes got right is uh, the the dominant kind of forest green color. Uh, and we only have this here as a, as a uh, success because... We still got Newton on the mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's in line with a lot of the, the Newton... Uh, design aesthetic, specifically the E-Mate, even though it looks like the plastics used in these prototypes are solid, opaque, and the E-Mate, of course, was translucent. So we give it a, a thumbs up for predicting uh, color used in a forthcoming product, but really it's an overall thumbs down. Let's not end on too much of a downer, but this th- the whole theme here is Apple products that never existed. So let's let's run through quickly some of the things that never happened. The magic portless accessories rail never happened. And I think there's clear reasons why. The modular multi-case desktop is actually 180 degrees from what came down in terms of Apple design just a year later. Uh, they were saying that you should split the desktop out into m- even more pieces. So these two these two cases plus a monitor plus speakers plus this plus that and apple's answer was to go the other way to the all-in-one and say here's the imac it's all in one the speakers the drives the monitor everything it's got a handle pick it up it's just like the original mac this is all you need on the side of uh networking and communications uh on both the laptop and the desktop there was no wi-fi wi-fi as we know it 802.11 um, they did have some wireless protocols, uh, what they call a combination infrared and radio port. So I guess for like beaming short distances and obviously uh, small amounts of data. Yeah, they said it was more for like connecting to printers and that kind of thing. And to be fair, as Ed has written here, uh, the 802.11b 
wasn't even standardized until three years later in 1999. So we can kind of forgive them on missing what the true future of wireless computing was. Uh, But yeah, infrared and radio did not really stick around. Yes and no. I mean, Douglas Adams had that vision in a long time before that. Uh, He didn't, you know, spec it out, but he he wanted that uh, high bandwidth wireless transfer. One other thing that Apple never did was that swivel laptop screen. Uh, I mean, there were some bad windows, like the early tablet PCs that would flip all the way around, but they had those fragile, fragile, fragile connectors that allowed for that second degree of motion. And I can understand why Apple never went that route. But I have to say that they did this on one model of desktop machine, one of my favorites, another one of my picks from the uh, Mac draft that we did, the iMac G4, which had the uh, the swivel mount, uh, you know, the, the lamp design, uh, which allowed for two degrees of freedom in the monitor, both you know, forward, backwards, up, down, and left and right, I guess three degrees of freedom, really, in the monitor. And that was really useful in a desktop setting. I can see why you know it might not have been as useful in a laptop or as easy to do because that arm on the iMac is pretty solid, whereas those flimsy swivel connectors in laptops really weren't. We made fun of them enough already, but the, the fold-out flappy speakers <laughs> were a terrible idea. And in general, I think any kind of laptop design that says you will now fold something out of the side of your monitor is still a bad idea. I mean, but it's an idea that won't die. We just saw at CES last month, Razer built an absurd laptop with three screens where the left and right screens fold out of the central screen. And no, no nobody wants this. <laughs> Um, you know, you'll see some breathless CES articles saying like, oh, I played this game on it and it was fantastic because it was so wide, but like, no. Also not a great idea. The hot swappable, uh, pointing devices. I'm, I'm sure that someone would have had good use to have a joystick permanently implanted in the place of, uh, a trackpad or a trackball. Not permanently. You couldn't shut it then. (laughs) You would have to pop it back out. Right. I meant anchored, but yeah, uh, neither really make a lot of sense to me. Um, hot swappable drive bays, sir, sure, in a laptop. Well, those already existed at that time. Uh, swappable pointing devices, no thank you. And now to, you know, not end it on total comedy hour or uh, downer. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting was I said that they were big on telephony features and the features that a modem could bring both to a desktop and a laptop. And one of the things that they said is, they fully, quote, we fully expect to see computers and phones merge. Sounds like a hit, not a miss, right? It makes more sense for your Mac to be at the center of placing phone calls and all this other stuff. So they missed it there. Um, but I think, you know, that was a good vision. I'm holding, you know, I'm gesturing wildly you can't see because it's a podcast with my iPhone in my hand right now. <laughs> um, a- Apple made that happen. They made computers and phones merge, but they were in the shape of the phone, not in the shape of the computer. And obviously, that was the winning way. So all of these uh, hardware and software features, the ones that made the cut, um, have really shaped some good products in the meantime. And the ones that 
didn't make the cut are what led us to look at these prototypes and go, wow. (laughs) And I think that does it for our episode on some crazy concepts, mostly from 1996, uh, but from the the era of the classic Mac. Number one thing that you got to do is you got to check out the show notes for this episode to see the wonderful pictures of Galileo and Enterprise if you do not have the fond memories of them that I did. Honestly, my memory was fairly accurate, at least of the desktop one. I remembered green sweeping curves and uh, was was mostly correct. So go check that out uh, in your podcast app or on our website, simplebeep.com slash episodes. If you have any feedback for us, you can also send that to us through our website. Uh, if you uh, have memories of encountering an Apple TV box in uh, Disneyland in the mid-90s or any other uh, concept products that, uh, you know, not like crazy fan concepts. I mean, everyone's seen bad concept art on on the web uh, during various stages of the Apple rumor mill. But this more serious stuff uh, like what Macworld produced or actual stuff that came out of Apple prototypes, that kind of thing. Feel free to send it our way and uh, we'll cover it in an upcoming episode. You can always get in contact with us via the contact form on our website or on Twitter. Our show handle is simple underscore beep. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at E-Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks and we'll see you next time.